This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations, and we're all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-styled disciple maker. Today's podcast features Discipleship.org partner, Global Discipleship Initiative, and their track at the National Forum called Turning Your Church into a Disciple-Making Mission. The track relates to what can be called church culture, which is the way you naturally function as a church. Discipleship.org has a free resource on church culture to help you become a disciple-making church. And you can download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's a visual introduction to the book Disciple-Making Culture. Download this free resource on church culture to get practical guidance on changing the culture at your church into a church that's focused on disciple-making as something you are, not just something you do. So go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for the Disciple-Making Culture visual introduction. The episode for today is called The Relational Environment Transformation, featuring Greg Ogden and Ralph Rittenhouse. Take a listen. Welcome back to Psalm. Thank you for tracking with us. So for those of you who knew are coming in, you should have an outline in front of you. And this is an outline that covers all five of our sessions. And uh, so you can see on the front page the overview of what we are covering in this, this uh, workshop. And uh, it takes us through uh, from a successful, what we're trying to do is how to help you have a successful journey of disciple making within, within your churches. The first session, um, Ralph Rittenhouse, my partner in crime here, uh, shared about uh, the transformation of his church in Southern California, uh, Camarillo Community Church, and their five-year process of seeing them go from zero to about 150 discipleship groups in five years. So uh, that amounts to probably 450 to 600 people engaged in discipleship groups and a real tipping point. And so you can see this, this symbol that we are, are using, uh, this image uh, on the screen here of what makes for a successful disciple-making journey. We're on this first element here, two sessions on relational environment. We looked at the last session there on Jesus' biblical model of making disciples. And we're using the image of the microgroup as the, as the container or as the relational environment or the vehicle uh, which we are traveling in. And so uh, the, the microgroup of groups of three or four people gathering together around a, a covenant of disciple-making, sharing their life with each other, uh, same-sex groups meeting 90 minutes a week for a year to year and a quarter, a year and a half, um, and going through a disciple-making curriculum that empowers them to uh, disciple others. Session uh, tomorrow morning uh, will be on intentional leader, uh, that every leader of a microgroup is a necessary leader in in the church, and so kind of the most important leader, we think, uh, of the church to push disciple-making out to the, the grassroots level of a congregation. And how do we support those leaders? How do those leaders go about forming groups? We'll walk you through a step-by-step process of how groups are formed and the role of the leader in forming those groups. And then we'll look at uh, how does the church set up a supportive environment for those leaders uh, as well. And then the last session tomorrow morning will be on the reproducible process, the, the GPS, uh, and that is the curriculum uh, that's necessary 
to get you there. So the GPS is the curriculum uh, that goes into the into the in relational environment. So uh, in this session, we're going to pick up on the second element here of the relational environment, uh, the elements of transformation. I call it creating the hothouse effect. Um, that image of the hothouse uh, came to me uh, when my wife and I had an t- opportunity to take a trip to Alaska in the summertime. Any of us been to Alaska? Got so you didn't go in January, did you? <coughs> I didn't think so. Uh, so we take trips, in, and what happens in the summertime uh, in Alaska? The sun is always up, right? For, so on Jan- June 21st in, in Alaska, how much darkness is there? Just this little sliver uh, in the sky. And because of that, it kind of creates the hothouse effect, the environment in which things grow very rapidly. If the sun's up almost 24-7, things are going to grow more rapidly than others. So the, the greenhouse or the hothouse effect, and we hear these stories of 1,000-pound pumpkins in a very short period of time and that kind of thing. So I thought, you know, that's my experience of what happens in, in a microgroup. When you get people together in that fashion, um, the, the acceleration of growth seems to take place. So here's our comment about that. When we open our hearts in transparent trust to each other around the truth of God's word and a spirit of mutual accountability engaged in our God-given mission, we are in the Holy Spirit's hothouse of transformation. So there are four elements that you see there on the screen. They come together and get maximized in these smaller groups. And that's why the effects occur that they do and the Holy Spirit is, is released. We'll be looking at the first bullet and the third bullet, because uh, we just don't have time to go through each one of those elements. But it happens to be chapter 8 in Transforming Discipleship, so you can get the full picture uh, from uh, in that book. So, um, I want to take you into uh, a personal experience and uh, show how this even is uh, working in the context of prison. Cheryl came up to me and at the break and said, does this work in prison? And I said, well, just wait. <laughs> so one of the, one of, I retired in March of 2012, and I think most of the things I'm doing now in, quote, my retirement years were not on my radar screen when I retired. Uh, so I just said to the Lord, help me to follow your promptings of your Holy Spirit to know what I'm supposed to do in this period of time. So about six months before I retired, I got a digital photo. Uh, that's from a Texas prison, Kennedy, Texas, John B. Connolly Maximum Security Prison. And a now friend, Craig Brubaker, who was the volunteer chaplain there, sent me this photo. And lo and behold, they had taken that phrase that I just read to you out of my book, turned it into the centerpiece for their discipleship program in this Texas prison. They had a faith-based unit, 48 men, 24 cells. You had to qualify to be in this group by going through an interview process that said you wanted to become a disciple of Jesus in prison. And so here they are. They're gathered around. This is a graduation photo from the year process. Hot house of the Holy Spirit. When we open our hearts in transparent trust to each other, around the truth of God's word, in a spirit of life-changing accountability, we are in the Holy Spirit's hot house of transformation. So Craig sent me that photo. I said, well, I'm retiring in six months. Uh, maybe I could come down and... Uh, You'll see what you're doing and offer a word of encouragement to these men. Now, at that point, I didn't realize they were a maximum security prison. Uh, so they were 50 years to life sentences for most of them. 
So many of them may not even ever get out of, of prison. So I responded to Craig's invitation, went in September of, of 2012 to Kennedy, Texas, about an hour south of San Antonio, Texas. Um, I don't think I even knew it was maximum security prison the first day I went in there. Actually, the day I got came out and came through the fences going out, there was a sign on the fence that said, no hostages beyond this point. <laughs> what do you think of that, Matt? No. I'm glad I didn't see that when I walked in. <laughs> so Craig had me speak to four different groups that first day, and then I met with this group uh, this, the next day, and uh, they described to me what they were going through in terms of their process. And we had some really good dialogue. One of the guys asked me right off the shot, shoot, and I was like, were you, were you, it was kind of a Hispanic gang member. You know, were you uh, nervous when you came in here? And I said, yeah, I was nervous. And he said, he said well, you didn't seem nervous. I thought, thankfully. <laughs> um, but right at the end, there was a man who, in front of the other 48 men, uh, said to me, we are the forgotten people. Don't forget us. One of those stabs in the heart. And so I knew something had happened in terms of my interchange with these men, that there was a, something the Lord was saying. I was always terrified about prison ministry. I would hear people give testimonies about it, and here was my internal response. God bless you for doing that. <laughs> I can't imagine doing that myself. I couldn't. I was just like beyond my, my radar screen. I came back three months later just to see if kind of if the Holy Spirit was saying something to me. I mingled with more of these men, uh, did some teaching, went into their faith-based unit and spent a lot of time. And the Lord was obviously saying, do something about this. You know, I realized that there were prisons in California. Lo and behold, you know, who would have thought? Uh, so I called the, the prison chaplain at a prison about 45 minutes drive from me, a California state prison. Uh, how can you use me? Um, and so I've, since June of 13, I've been going weekly uh, to a prison. Um, it's called uh, Correctional Training Facility. Um, and uh, so I meet every Wednesday morning with a group of about 40 to 50 men. Uh, so and teaching through Ephesians right now, but we've also started these intentional discipleship groups that I've been talking about. But I want to read a letter to you because it's, it's an inspirational letter uh, of what could happen even in the context of prison. So this is a letter from uh, the Jefferson City Correctional Center in Jefferson City, Missouri. I had donated some books uh, to them, and they got the discipleship process started. And this man is writing back to me, thanking me for that and updating me as to what's been going on in the prison since then. Uh, Dear Mr. Ogden, uh, this letter feels long overdue. Um, I'm writing on behalf of the discipleship group from this Jefferson City Correctional Training Center, Exceptional Correctional Center in Jefferson City, Missouri. You may remember that you donated books, etc. Uh, I want to write to encourage you. God has used your words to great impact here among the brothers in chains. A quick rundown of who we are and how this group got started. We are a level five maximum security prison. Many of us have life sentences and some of us will never leave these fences. It's a great temptation to believe that as society has deemed us as unfit to live among them, God has given up on us as well. The lies the enemy whispers in our ears come in the form of doubt, guilt, 
shame, and a lot of uselessness. Quote, God can never use someone like you. Quote, you are disqualified. Even, quote, God can never love someone like you. Thankfully, we believe the Bible is true and the gospel is for us. Grace is amazing precisely because it saves wretches like us. Out of the ashes of our sin and addictions, God has brought forth the beauty of a community of broken men desperate for a Savior. Also believing the Great Commission is for us, we knew that we carried a responsibility to make disciples, Christ-centered, reproducing disciples. So several years ago, about 10 of us gathered together and came up with a strategy for reaching the men around us for Christ. Each of us would find two men who were saved, hungry, and untaught, and we would take a year of our lives and pour into them. Of course, here's where you came in. Your curriculum and generosity to provide us with books gave us a foundation to get started. I wish I could tell you that a couple of years later, every convict in this prison was walking with the Lord. Of course, that is not the case. But this month, we have started our fourth generation of discipleship. Every man went through the program and then was challenged to find two faithful men to pass the baton of discipleship to. To see multiplication in action has been such a blessing. We are growing. And this is my favorite line. God is becoming famous here. He says we face unique challenges. How do you disciple someone who can barely read? How do we overcome racial tension? How do you teach when you don't even have a junior high education? We're not free to meet for Bible studies whenever we want. We can't rally at the local Starbucks for one-on-one discipleship. God has been so faithful and the fruit is falling off the vines. More than 100 men have been discipled. Um, They are going out and reproducing themselves in other prisons in Missouri and the housing units here. Prisons move people around constantly. That happens in California. Some, you show up one week and the people that you've been investing in are gone. They're off to another, another prison. They're going out and reproducing themselves in other prisons and in the housing units here. One prison guard was doing searches, room searches and came across your book. Inspired as we were, he went home, bought the book, and started his own group. <laughs> one church heard about what we were doing here and based their college ministry on this plan. We had a Buddhist give his life to the Lord and join our group. What a joy it has been to see him grow, share the gospel, and study the word. We have lifelong criminals with terribly violent pasts, teaching others about how to live faithfully. Rapists are speaking about how to remain sexually pure with their guys. Murderers are dying to themselves, taking up their crosses and following Jesus. Drug users are becoming addicted to Christ. We felt like we have an Acts 2 church here. We meet every Wednesday night for worship, prayer, short message, and accountability time with our groups. We then meet once or twice a week with our groups for discipleship, Bible study, and life on life ministry. Then he quotes 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Having so fond an affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. It's a cool thing happening here. We just want to thank you for being obedient to the call of God has placed on your life. Like I said before, your faithfulness is making a great impact here in prison. Also, if you ever wanted to come and see us, we would be thrilled. Of course, we can't pay you unless you started accepting gratuities of ramen noodle soups and cigarettes. <laughs> but we'd be honored to have you come and speak to our group and encourage the brothers. I have not had that privilege um, for the ramen noodle soups, anyhow. So what do you think? Do we have any excuses? Did that take away every excuse that we have? <laughs> In terms of not, uh, you know, following through on, on disciple making and all that. So, um, but and I, I see it in where I go on a weekly basis. We've just launched four Hispanic discipleship groups because Discipleship Essentials is in Spanish. 
and four English uh, discipleship groups. So each one of those four have four people in them. And uh, so uh, actually I've launched six Spanish groups. And so then I meet with the leaders regularly when I come there on Wednesdays. We have our leadership meeting time. Uh, supervise that. So um, what we want to talk about here is a couple of the core elements uh, that make for transformation uh, in uh, this discipleship group. So uh, let me ask you, that we, one of our GDI values is that God shapes our hearts in an honest, open, and mutually accountable environment. Um, so why is this a necessary for transformation? Why is this open, honest environment? Why can't we just preach and teach the scriptures and allow it to do its work? Uh, I'm going to ask you just to pair up and talk to somebody near you and to answer these questions. Why might having authenticity, openness, uh, uh, transparent relationships be necessary for transformation into Christ's license to take place? So talk a little bit. Find somebody around you. Introduce yourself. Um, and so, and uh, see what you, see what you come up with. I go All right, let's uh, let me call you back together again. What'd you talk about? Why uh, might a transparent, trusting environment be a necessary quality for transformation to take place, especially as we're talking about in the content of the container, in the context of the container of the micro group of three or four? Uh, why is that a, a vital element? Thoughts? You don't think it is? Okay. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, Keith and I uh, discussed where, uh, you know, I think that, you know, hope, you know, having a, you know, being open invites more openness, and it, it allows kind of uh, the the uh, the atmosphere, the environment to become a, a real and honest one where you can get support. You don't feel like you're the only one. You don't feel like you're alone with Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then okay. you can you can you can help attack and come up with a plan together and walk with somebody. Yeah. To have some accountability and get there. Yeah. So you you mentioned a, kind of a couple things within that um, sort of trusting environments where you walk alongside each other. You can provide encouragement. Um, you're sort of sharing your common humanity in a sense, right. a common broken humanity. Uh, we all have that, and certain to the extent that we uh, can admit that as quickly as possible, that we all have areas of say besetting sin. Um, then we're not alone in that, and then as you say, we can then craft strategies to, to address it. That's great. Okay, yeah. So we were talking about trust here. Yeah, uh, okay. And we also have each other's back. Like, no matter what time of night, what time of day, uh-huh. if he has a struggle, he calls me. Yeah. I call him. So okay. Knowing you're not alone, that you have somebody that's actually standing there with you and uh, is so vital uh, in, in all that. So, yeah. It allows you to unmask. Uh, uh, unmask? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because we can see the life after the benediction. Uh, what, life after the benediction? It's life during the benediction in the church. Uh-huh. What I remember that is, I'm able to be transparent at the church where I'm my real self without yeah. a mask. Okay. With, be your real self without a mask. And I, I think many of us would probably acknowledge that churches can be places where we can put on the best front and everything looks good. 
uh, and we need those places where maybe the cracks are shown um, as well. So the honesty that's there. So build a trust, trusting environment. Uh, probably a number of qualities uh, that are there that connected to that. Trust keeps confidences. So you're only going to trust to the level that you know that what's shared in the group stays in the group. That's usually a part of the covenant that you make uh, overtly uh, with each other is that uh, you know, we do not let these things out unless somebody gives overt permission uh, to share this uh, beyond that. So what would happen if you shared something of a sensitive nature and it got out? The group is over, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's done. Maybe some of us ex- have experienced that and are cautious. Uh, because of uh, past experiences along those lines. Uh, trust is full of grace. Um, we go in just offering the grace that Christ gives to us. So as we open our lives to each other, we will run into those areas of our life where we acknowledge before each other our own mutual confessions, and then we have the opportunity to offer grace to each other, even to offer, on behalf of Christ, forgiveness to each other. Um, and so for some things that have in our life. Trust listens. Um, this is one of the opportunities we have in, in group life is to listen deeply to each other, to ask questions, to go beyond just the surface, to stay with somebody's issue, to practice a, a deeper level of, of listening. Well, I'll come back to this in a moment in terms of one of those st- stages of, of trust development as well. And then trust is rooted in humility. Um, humble, the humble make no pretense about our own capacity uh, for sin in our life. And uh, so this is where I think grace and humility is unshockable. Um, we're all capable of, of things. And there's a, God has no surprises about us, and we shouldn't have those with each other as well. So it's an opportunity for that kind of uh, level of, of acceptance. So as we uh, look at this whole area of trust and openness, you might, people might say, well, why do I need to have a group of people which I'm sharing my life in a in a deep sort of way. You know, God knows all the thing there is to know about me. And if I am open before the Lord and, and laying about my heart, why do I need people uh, to do that with? Uh, well, Scripture does say some things about us, uh, like Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? Uh, we can even try to pull the wool over God's eyes at times, I think. Um, the IRS received the following note. Gentlemen, and close, you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year and have not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I will send you the rest. <laughs> well, we'll be honest up to a certain point, yes. Um, so here's the, at least the principle that uh, I operate off of. Uh, come on. Uh, the extent to which we are willing to reveal to others those areas of our life that need God's transforming touch is the extent to which we are inviting the Holy Spirit to make us new. So we're open to each other, and we're saying to the Lord, I want to become all that you intend me to be, and therefore I'm going to be radically honest with a group of people about my life because I so want you to work in my life in a deep, deep way. So that, you know, vert- vertical, is that vertical? Yes, vertical and horizontal <coughs> connections uh, that, that need to be together. What's that, what are some of the stages of trust development? Um, let's take a look at these. Uh, first of all, affirmation. Uh, I always think about the starting of a new group. So when a new group comes together, what are the, some of the thoughts and feelings that people are going through as you are anticipating 
starting a new group of four. Any anxiety about it? What kind of anxiety might people be experiencing? Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world. How to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting, like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in sustainable discipleship. It's not materials, it's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. Huh? Unknowns. Unknowns, yeah. Who are these people that I'm going to be engaging with? You may know them somewhat. You may not know them at all. I've, a lot of times st- started groups with three strangers to each other. I'm usually the one that's the common link you know, in terms of I know them, but they don't know each other. Uh, so am I going to like these people? A year, a year and a quarter with the same people? Wow. Uh, so there's that kind of level of anxiety that's there as you begin. So uh, I always try to start with some fun, um, sharing our stories. Uh, if they're all married, I always ask, ask them, uh, share one incident in your courtship uh, that was an embarrassing moment for you. <laughs> and uh, we laugh at each other's stories. And there's nothing like laughter. That, to reduce anxiety. So have some fun with your, your storytelling. And the leader's guide that's at the back of Discipleship Essentials, I give some suggestions as to the kinds of things you can do as, at the initial start of a, of a group that helps penetrate um, those kind of anxieties that are there. But you want to, you know, I talk about at the beginning, you're, you're sticking your toe in the water. And you're saying, hmm, is it safe here? Is this a safe place? Uh, and so you'll kind of wade out in the water to the level of which you think the water is going to be safe to get into. So starting with affirmation is really, really important. Uh, when I think of that, I think of an incident that occurred uh, right before worship on a Sunday morning. I had a five-year stint outside of the pastorate where I was working at Fuller Seminary, uh, directing the doctor ministry program there. So I was showing up for worship, not being the preacher. And so dashed in the restroom before worship on Sunday morning. As I was washing my hands, the our principal worship leader comes in, and uh, Chris, and I thought, it's a perfect opportunity. I hardly ever have a chance for personal communication, so I said, Chris, I just want to thank you for the blessing you are to this congregation. And, uh, you know, you, I don't know how you do it, but you're up in front of us, and you point us to Jesus, you lose yourself, and it's quite a gift that you are to me and to those of us. What I really was dumbfounded was his reaction. He said, thank you so much. I hardly ever hear that. It caused me to realize, you know, we're a bit niggardly when it comes to our affirmations of people, bestowing grace upon people. So 
to take the time to say, you know, thank you for people's lives. And we get a chance to do that in these groups, this state appreciation uh, for that. Uh, second one is walking together with each other during difficult times. One of the things I love about the length of these groups is that they, uh, you're going to have some quality of life-threatening experience happen to one or more of the people in the group during that period of time. could be a health issue. could be an employment issue. could be a you know, relationship like marriage. It uh, could be a child going off the rails. Um, something of quality of life situation is going to happen uh, during, during that time. And uh, Ralph's going to tell us about one of the guys in his group. The groups sometimes dictate what you do. Mm-hmm. And we showed up one particular um, Wednesday at the Mexican eatery where we had our group. <clears throat> and Ed just said, you know, I don't think Pam and I are going to make it. And suddenly we closed the books and we started dealing with Ed. Talking with Ed, talking through. We did that for three weeks. We just didn't get to the material at all. We spent our time totally focused on Ed and his relationship with Pam. When I retired and uh, was leaving Camarillo Community Church, the last Sunday they had a big thing and everybody comes and they say, thank you, Ralph, thank you, Jackie, you know, this kind of stuff. And Ed and Pam are sitting in the front row and Ed stands up and turns to the group and says, Pam and I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for our quality. I get daily um, emails or or text messages from Ed. He's in my done group. My done group just says done. Means you've done your 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 morning devotions and this stuff. And we just that's our accountability. Still going on now. That's years and years ago. That was now. I still hear from Ed, and he and Pam are doing great. Raised some great children and everything, but. You don't know what your group's going to do, what God has intended for that group. And you let him determine that. You let him lead that. And you are sensitive to each other. And that honesty and openness is huge. It's huge. Yeah, one other thing. Ralph, when you tell this story, you, you left out an important point. Make it. I've, 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 I've heard you tell this many times. What did one of your group members say to Ed? Uh, no way. <laughs> no way. You're not moving out. You're not going anywhere. Uh, just they just wouldn't wouldn't even tolerate the thought of it. They held his feet to the fire and said, yeah. "Your marriage is going to last, That's and we're right. going to we're going to get you through it." <laughs> Determined. Yeah. When I one of the, one of my groups, um, we I could tell you oodles and oodles of stories around this particular theme. But uh, we met at uh, a law office of a personal injury attorney that was in my group, and so we met around his conference table, 6.30 on Thursday morning. And throughout the entire time of our our time together, Grant's law firm was barely making. Uh, Personal injury attorneys take on cases, they invest lots of money into a a lawsuit, and you only get money back if you win the lawsuit. So you could put two or $300,000 into a lawsuit up front, lose the lawsuit, and that money's gone. And so he was a, kind of a mom-and-pop law office, and he had, for a number of years, focused on this particular court case and uh, was, is, was seemed like a make-it-or-break-it kind of thing. 
And he would talk about his old friend was back. And what was his old friend? His old friend was fear. Uh, fear that he was going to lose it all. And uh, so he lost this lawsuit. It was devastating. And he wrote this to me. He said, we have endured great hardship, hoping for a better future. Now it seems that that future will not come to pass. I must face the reality that the career I have worked for 18 years is not working. I am 45 years old and must rely on my mom for handouts. I have bills to pay, a car that hardly runs, and a crushed spirit. If dreams sustain a man, I'm in trouble. That was going on during our discipleship group. He told us on one Thursday morning that uh, he hadn't had the money to pay for his employees the next day. Next day was payday, Friday. And uh, so, obviously, we entered into prayer with him. And the next day came. Still didn't have the money. Mail came in at noon. A client that he had written off, never going to be paid by, sent in a check that day that covered (laughs) what was needed to to pay his employees so his law office could continue on. I'm happy to say that uh, Grants is still in business today and actually doing quite well and receives these awards as uh, one of the top lawyers uh, in the area, but does it really from a discipleship standpoint in terms of his his care for his, his people. So these are the kinds of things that you get a chance to walk with people through during this, these times of these discipleship group. Third quality here was being reflective listeners. Um, do we have listeners in our life uh, that listen to us deeply? One of the ones uh, that I remember so well, Dave, Dave Lassine. Uh, Dave was uh, in his early 50s. He had been in the insurance business for 30 plus years. Um, he was going through those success to significant stage of his life. You know what? Do I just want to continue in this insurance business? What else does God have for me? Dave was a deep, devoted follower of Christ. Everybody respected his his commitment level. And then there was an opportunity that came his way uh, to leave his insurance business, uh, work with CEOs of business who are Christian leaders, so that to help them uh, become deeper in their own discipleship of how they led their business, an organization called C12. And... To do that and start this new business, which is a for-profit business, he had to give up his insurance business, lose his safety net, and shift into this new world. And so we processed with him and listened to him deeply in terms of this major shift in his life. You know, this is now probably 10, 12 years later at this point, and Dave uh, is thriving in this new world. But the, the giving up of the security of what he had to take on something new and build that from scratch uh, to minister to Christian CEOs was uh, a major thing. It's just a privilege, isn't it, to walk with people through these these moments where God makes major changes uh, in their life in, in that fashion. And then finally, the deep end of the pool, as I like to call it, is getting that place of mutual confession. Uh, one of our guys in my group, who I'm still very close to, Chuck, uh, about six months into our group time, maybe even less than that, said, okay, I've got a, something that I've got to share with you. Um, and my wife doesn't know about it. I've been running up charges on a credit card. I'm about $50,000 in. I send the bills to my work so that she doesn't know about it. And this is the fourth time this has happened. I'm afraid my marriage may not survive when this comes out. So he told us before he told her, uh, 
you can imagine the eruption that did occur once that information got out. Uh, fortunately, I was pastor to both of them, and so sat down with them, and uh, Sally was gracious to take over Chuck's finances <laughs> and, uh, and you know, do the corrective action there. But, you know, and of course, then we held Chuck's feet to the fire in terms of the financial mismanagement uh, during that time. Bonhoeffer puts it like this. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin's demand, sin demands a man to have, excuse me, sin demands a man by, to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks through into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother or sister, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. It's a powerful statement. Yeah, there. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? Uh, are we acting, ever acting more as priests when we have an opportunity when somebody confesses to articulate and say, on behalf of Jesus, name of Jesus Christ, I want to declare to you that you are forgiven. And uh, we have the right to say that uh, to each other based upon what Christ has done from one another. <coughs> so uh, this is a, an important role uh, that we play. One final thing, and then we're going to go on to the accountability piece that Rafa is going to lead us in here. And that is, uh, when I left the church in Chicago and I retired in March of 12, the, uh, the church did a wonderful, gracious thing. We had a loan that uh, was needed to be paid back when we sold our house, as churches oftentimes do, to help support us. And the church substantially forgave that loan to us and helped launch us into our retirement years. And I was really overwhelmed with the gra- graciousness of, of that, that gift. So I went to the, our board of trustees, who was the ones that made that decision, and uh, through choking back tears, thanked them for uh, their gift to my wife and I and uh, their confidence in our, our life and ministry. And then a day or two later, I got a note, uh, which you probably can't read um, on, on the screen here, but it says, and one of our <coughs> members of the board of trustees said, Greg, your heartfelt remarks to the board last night prompted me to reflect on your significant impact on my life something I have not shared with you. Gathering around Discipleship Essentials was a turning point for me, transformational impact, life-changing. Awakening God's call led me to confront my drinking problem, save my marriage, and renew numerous broken relationships. Thank you for being true to God's call on your life. It has changed mine. Don't you want to be involved in those kind of relationships? Um, I actually didn't leave his group. <laughs> this was another group he was in, led by the senior pastor of the church. But at least he felt the off, you know, the spin off of that. Any questions or comments at this point from on the relational side of thing, the relational transparency issue? Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. we turn to the firm slide? The What is the meaning of the quote? Oh, one. <laughs> I forgot to mention that, didn't I? Yeah. Well, it's all a loving rebuke is worth 100 affirmations. Well, what I usually say in relationship to that quote is uh, I like to reverse it and saying we need 100 affirmations for one solid yeah. loving rebuke. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, we can all take rebukes 
when we are confident about the security of the relationship that we have. You know, um, I mentioned um, Dan Meyer, the senior pastor I worked with in Chicago. Uh, we had a wonderful, marvelous relationship. I was accountable to him. We'd have to do our annual reviews. And sometimes he had to say hard things to me. And I could receive those hard things because I lived in the affirmation of what he had given me to that point. I never doubted the security of that relationship, and so he was free to point out to me things I needed to be aware of that I was blind to. So living in the context of affirmation, we can receive a rebuke, you know, and oftentimes it is those rebukes that launch us, launch us forward in a, in a way as well. Okay. Uh, I think so. So if you affirm them, then you burn the right... To, to do things, things. Yeah, right. So okay. to say, to say the hard words. I you know? Thank you. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience sure. in our life. Yeah. Well, I think that rebuke is straight. Like from my wife, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that phrase is straight from Proverbs. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yeah, okay. More than the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the words of a friend more than the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, that's great. Good, good. Good grab on that one. Okay, um, Ralph, why don't you lead us through the covenantal side of things here. Um, and I'll put up on the screen here what you need at certain t- points okay. in time. <clears throat> Someone comment, commented to me uh, during the last session that the covenant had meant so much to her and her groups uh, because you, you sign that covenant going in saying that I'm going to do the homework, I'm going um, to show up, you know, I'm going to carve out the time in my schedule and be faithful to the group. I'm going to allow God to do this work in my life and in my heart. I'm going to leave my heart open to God to do that. And I'm going to be, I'm going to contribute to the transparency of the group and the honesty and the transparency. Um, those things set us up for a kind of accountability that's very important and um, there's, uh, I think some of what Greg just said uh, says the same th- kind of thing. We desperately need that kind of accountability in our lives. If real life change is going to take place, it has to come somewhere. And for most of us as guys, uh, there are not too many places that can, that can happen. Um, you're just not going <coughs> to say those kinds of things on the front steps of the church you know we don't have those intimate opportunities like that and men you know what was this comment that most men don't have enough friends to carry the coffin you know (laughs) when we die you know I mean we just don't have that many close friends often and I as a pastor did not have that many close friends until we started doing these kinds of groups and then all of a sudden I had in my life men who you know could be honest with me and they were, I, I could be honest with them. We could talk about issues we're struggling with. And um, those are, <clears throat> that kind of a context uh, for growth is, is, is critical. Um, we say that the curriculum that we use, you know, are just the tracks to run on. It's not the curriculum that changes us. It's God the Holy Spirit working through the relationships primarily uh, the curriculum is critical in the sense that it gives us that place and environment and, and uh, to, to do this. The, the group itself, we talk about being the car or the container or you know, the environment for that growth to take place. But 
it's the relationships within that that are so, so healthy. Um, gals, you probably can give me insight onto this, you know, how it is for you uh, in those kinds of groups, you know. Uh, you, some of you gals, gals have been in quads. You, you've experienced this. Uh, any of you have been in a quad experience? I'm, I'm talking about the gals. I know the guys have. Yes, you have. What, what, what was your experience in that context? You've got the, the, the covenant that you agree to, which allows for that accountability. How has that worked for you guys, for your groups? Well, my current group dropped from five to three. So oh, because you, you got honest, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, uh, they just, two just could not be consistent. And yeah. it made a huge difference in the dynamics of our group when yeah. the conversations would take place. Um, we noticed when those two were absent that the bond was strengthening. Um, we noticed that we became very professional when the two were absent. So I knew that we needed to make a change. Sure, and, and sure. They just couldn't, they couldn't um, follow through on their commitment. And so we just moved on with the three. And, and now it's, it's just incredible. Yeah, and those you you learn those things sometimes in the process, and you can sense when there are those that just aren't ready to live up to that covenant. They're not going to be open and honest. They're not going to be transparent, and uh, you want to build that. And as a leader, that's the part of the leader's responsibility is to encourage that and to model that openness, that transparency, so that it is there. And yeah, there's some people maybe can't handle that. Uh, and that's an indication that they're they're not ready yet, maybe for you know to be a part of a group like that. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, this accountability, as far as you know, uh, guys are concerned, I've certainly experienced it very well. And um, <clears throat> when uh, someone is not able to live up to the covenant, when they are not uh, doing their homework, when they're not memorizing the verses, it does indicate something's, something's not right. And I shared with the last group that was in here, and some of you might have been here, that you know we had a guy in one of my groups that was that way, and it wasn't until later we found out his marriage was, this is not Ed, this was another situation, but this guy's marriage was in, in trouble. And we didn't know it. He wasn't saying anything about it. He just was not <coughs> fulfilling his part of the, the group. And we couldn't figure out why until we later learned that that's, you know, that's what was going on in the home. Um, and we offered a lot more grace as a result of that. Um, I have a group that just finished the 25th chapter. We've, we've finished the, the, the curric- basic curriculum, and all three of them are engineers. Um, now, I don't know what that means to you, but for me, <laughs> that was a, that was a fun group. That was a fun group. They, they are not highly relational. Uh, they are very meticulous. Uh, one guy writes in such little print, I can't even read it, and he does extra homework all the time. I mean, every space on the page is taken up, you know. That's And these guys, he's going to make a wonderful disciple, you know, one day. But um, but those guys were, uh, it was it was tough. And they, they talk about their new group. <clears throat> and we, we get into the leader's guide, and we're, we're going over it, and we're talking about this part of it. And... They have no mercy. <laughs> they just, you know, and I'm having to help them understand that you got to have a little grace in here 
Well, they, you know, they, they aren't hesitant at all to call somebody uh, to task when they haven't fulfilled their part. Uh, fortunately, they were all three in this one group, and so they are all holding, you know, uh, <clears throat> holding true. But uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be coaching them closely as, we, <laughs> as they start their groups because uh, they, were, they, were, they weren't <clears throat> offering much grace here. But that's part of the covenant's purpose is to say, here's the standard, here's what you can expect, here's what I'm going to do to contribute to this group. I'm going to come with my homework done, I'm going to come and be transferred, I'm going to, I'm going to live up this, and that creates that environment for, in which God can do His work. And each person of the group makes that kind of covenant, and so you want to go through this covenant and help them understand it. Now let me just ask you a question, how would you, if you're introducing this to your group, Say you're, you're the first week and you've gone through uh, the first, you know, 14, 15 pages and everybody understands, you know, so far how this thing is going and you come to the covenant. How do you help them personalize this covenant? Any thoughts? Yes. Um, when we first started doing groups without a covenant. Uh, we found that they got very theological and very light on transparency. Thank you for that observation. That's really rich. That's really rich. I wish I could quote that back into the machine, but I, I don't think I could. But I think basically what he's saying is this, when there isn't a covenant there, uh, you tend to sometimes be more theological and, and theoretical than actually personally transparent and, and letting the Holy Spirit do the life change, change and transformation that needs to take place. Thank you for that. That's yeah. a great observation. You may, you may not have a formal covenant, but what happens if there is no covenant? Everybody's got their own covenant. It's internal. They haven't spoken it, but they, each one has made a decision as to how much they are going to get in, get involved in it. The reason for a mutual covenant is why? You externalize it. All commit to the same level. Raise the level of, of investment. Um, so if you don't have a covenant... It doesn't mean there's not a covenant. <laughs> yeah, it's just a bunch of there's just a bunch of covenants. That's and all. when Greg starts his groups, typically he will go through the covenant line by line and have them almost read it back to him, repeat it, and then they say, "Okay, what's that mean to you?" You know, until they are really owning it, owning it as their own, which is uh, which is a, a great step. Is there any adaptation of the covenant in terms of like groups that meet? every other week instead of every week or does it dilute the group if you're not meeting every week okay that's a that's a great question and it's uh, i don't know that it's as much about the covenant is it about just how the groups can function well uh what we find is that a group that meets every other week uh you can lose momentum in that and if a person misses one meeting you haven't seen them for a month yeah so now, now you're really you've really broken the connection and the personalization of that connection. Uh, you you lose the intimacy often when it's not meeting weekly. We uh, there are times when it can, and we have Pradeep over here who 
comes from a culture where transportation and getting together is much more difficult. And so sometimes it's necessary to meet for three hours every other week or something in order to make that up somehow. And you just have to, uh, if you have a culture that demands that or a situation that demands that, then you have to find out a way to make it work and not lose that intimacy that's necessary for God to do his work. Is that fair? Yeah. Do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, also, I had a really uh, bad experience about covenant. Why don't you stand up and... <laughs> okay, so, yeah. one person said, why do you need covenant? Only God is there to make a covenant. Uh, <laughs> you are worthless of doing that. And I said, because you are saying this, that's why we need a covenant. So, <laughs> so he was really pointing me out. So, I find it... Um, Covenant is like a commitment. You are, you are committing, and we have so many things uh, flagging in front of us, uh, and everything seems to be so important uh, that we lose the momentum, and we commit and we don't. But when we have a covenant, that means we allow other team members to point us out and bring us back on track. So there is a lot of value in it. And in our culture, it's a difficult because people try to be away from it. Okay, I will be there, but I will not sign it. I said, no, <laughs> you got to sign it first. And so, and yeah, so, yeah, uh, <clears throat> different things happen. Don't, don't run away. I just wanted to say, when we went to Nepal and we were first installing Pradeep as the national director there, he had a, the group of guys that he had gathered together, and uh, when we introduced him to them as our selection as the national director there, uh, we asked for their affirmation of that. Uh, we wanted them to kind of respond to our selection and everything, and they just sat there kind of dumbfounded, and they said, he's the reason we're here. <laughs> because it was his influence that had brought them all there, and that culture had already accepted him before we ever said anything about it. Uh, he was already the one that God had appointed for their leader. Now, uh, I also remember that when we were talking with you about the uh, using this in your culture, in that session, we turned a lot of it over to you because you were recognizing that we can't we can't take American culture and put it into another culture and expect it to work. And we knew that, but we didn't know how they needed to adapt this in order to make it work. And with his guys that that afternoon, we saw them work this back and forth and massage this whole thing to make it work for their culture. And and it it's that's true. Certainly in a, in a cross-cultural situation like that, but it may be true in your situation too. So you've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit guide through uh, to make it work and accomplish what he wants to do. Sometimes you've got to tweak it, and that's okay, but you let the Holy Spirit lead you in that. Thank you. Pradeep. And again, if you haven't met Pradeep and gotten a chance to talk to him, you want to talk to this guy. It's amazing what God's doing over there and how God is using him in that culture. Yeah, ask there. him his story. Ask him his story. You'll love it. Um, let me see. Anything else I need to say here, uh, Greg? Uh, <clears throat> the covenant is your friend, and there will be people who will resist it. Uh, but when you go to... Uh, the Toyota agency and you say, I want to buy that car, uh, they're going to make you sign a contract whether you like it or not. 
they're not going to just take your word that you're going to pay those payments. <laughs> they're going to they get they want they want to know what they're getting and you want to know what you're getting and that's acceptable. Why would we not be willing to <clears throat> be covenantal in a relationship that's far more important than purchasing a car or a house or whatever? Yeah, I would add uh, a comment that was made here that the covenant really empowers the leader to call people back to what they've committed themselves to. One of the things that's built into Discipleship Essentials is that after Lesson 8 and Lesson 16, you go back and review and renew the covenant. And so you go back and you ask yourself the question, how am I doing in keeping the things I've committed myself to? Um, So we ask for self-evaluation. We don't evaluate each other. Um, Then we ask them, them, what disappointments have there been in this last period of time? Uh, Which leads to the question of, are there any changes in the covenant that we need to make? So covenant is a living thing. So it's not something that's static. You can, and, we, and we put in the covenant here, this is the basic things. You can add anything else to the covenant. In my, my latest group, um, we added two elements uh, to the covenant. Um, one was just the accountability around praying for and uh, trying to convey the gospel to people in our core relationships so that we can keep coming back uh, to that. And I think the second one had to do with uh, some service opportunities with each other uh, during this period of time. So those are basic elements. Add anything else that you think is uh, is important and uh, use that uh, covenant for the purpose of raising people's intensity level uh, in terms of their commitment. Well, you've been great in terms of hanging in here for all afternoon. Anybody tired? <laughs> Anybody worn out? Uh, just to remind you of a couple of opportunities here. Uh, if you have an information sheet, we'd love to get some information back from you uh, in terms of some ways that we can communicate with you. You see, uh, I think, three opportunities here. Newsletter, uh, cohort online. Uh, we started our first online training cohort this, this year. Uh, I've been going for the portion of the year. Uh, we have a cohort. It's called, what's a cohort? You know, that's technical language. It's a group of people that are studying together. Um, so... We have four pastors from across the country that have been meeting monthly online, a curriculum that I've, I've been developing as we go around this broader theme of turning your church into a disciple-making mission. And so if you're interested in that, here's the overview of the cohort. You can pick up a piece of paper here and, and look through the content, check your interest on that box. And then the final thing is uh, we have um, the designs for a one-day workshop. Uh, that you might want to take advantage of in your area, either for your church individually or sponsor for a region. Uh, so maybe some of you are in leadership positions where this would be uh, broad. So one of the reasons why we gave you that complete outline that you have for all five of our sessions, that gives you kind of an overview of what we might cover in a one-day workshop, you know, always designed for what you particularly need. So here's some brochures about that. Okay, so we're right at 4.15. I think we have a session uh, it starts at 4.30 in the main auditorium, correct? So give you a little chance to do whatever you need to do between now and then. So thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out and download for free the visual primer for the book, Disciple Making Culture. You can download this at discipleship.org ebooks. Until next time.